Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today's guest is Miss Angela Frazier. Angela is a speaker and the author of a kid's book about suicide. She came to the cafe to share her story of losing her mother to suicide, how her supportive family helped her through, and some warning signs and risk factors for suicide. Grab your warm drink and tune in for a great conversation. Angela, welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so very much for coming. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi, yes. My name is Angela Frazier. I am a speaker. I'm the founder of Sisters in Public Health and the author of a kid's book about suicide. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Can you please describe your experience, share your story with us? It's not often we meet someone who's written a kid's book about suicide. Yes, it, it is definitely rare, I would say. So I'll just jump right in. I lost my mom to suicide in 2016. She was someone who struggled with mental health, majority of her life, suicidal ideation. She attempted when I was in middle school. And I know prior to that, I wasn't aware of the time before that, but I was old enough to know in eighth grade when she did attempt. And I was then old enough to know my senior year when she attempted. So I kind of went the majority of my, the years after that, knowing that she was likely to attempt again, but she did when I was 24 years old. And that was the time that it was final. Although I knew she struggled with, with mental health, it was for sure a shock to my system. For that first year, I would say I felt really like shamed, you know, to, to talk about suicide. I, I addressed it a bit with those who was close to me, but it was something that I just wasn't really in a place to really talk about. So to then take that leap and then write a book about suicide was uh, pretty challenging, but I really felt like there was a need to discuss it, especially with the Black community. That's very brave of you. Thank you for for sharing your story of such a, I imagine a scary, very emotional time in your life. What was your initial reaction when you got the news? Yeah, my initial reaction was because my mom had attempted prior to there, it still was shock. It still truly was shock. However, I wasn't surprised. Like I always was on edge that that was going to happen again. And would it be a time where it was final? Um, the feeling when I got the phone call from my mom's sister and she mentioned that there was a, a detective who called and left a, left a message saying that we, you know, know the person by the name of Tammy Best. And I knew right away, there was a gut feeling I had. I knew right away that she had taken her life. It was pretty instant before I, I, it was even confirmed that I knew. Wow. What supports did you have for these multiple occurrences and then yeah. at the finality? Yeah. My family were really close, but my mom's side and my dad's side, my parents had me when they were in high school. So I have the pleasure of, of having really both sides of my family that grew up knowing each other and, and still continue to. So the support was amazing. It, it always has been. When the when I was in eighth grade, I will say it was a bit more hidden from me at that attempt. I just was picked up from my dad from school that day. I was kept at his house for a few days until my mom wasn't feeling well in the hospital until there's more conversations later about it. So it was pretty hush-hush with that attempt. By senior in high school, I was well, I was, you know, well aware of kind of what, what was going on by then. 
my dad actually flew into town. We lived in Las Vegas at the time. He stayed with us for a while. And then his mother flew in town and stayed with us for a while as well. So that's just to say, my dad was married at the time with, with other kids. So that was just shows that, that there's that level of support that was still there. And then at that final time, you know, we, of course, gathered at my mom's, my mom's side of the family. But it was a mixture of my mom's side there, my dad's side there. If you were someone who was just there, you truly wouldn't know, you know, whose side of the family was who. So the support has always been phenomenal. I definitely am surrounded in, in lots of love. That sounds lovely. How did you start your healing process? You know, my dad said really early on, and I think probably within the first 10 days, he said, you need to go to counseling, which was, somebody had to tell him to say that. <laughs> That's not my dad. <laughs> I looked back at that. I'm like, I can't believe you said that to me. But he was right. He was right. And I did. I got involved in counseling pretty fast. I did one-on-one counseling, but the counseling that I really enjoyed was from a group called So Survivors of Suicide, and you are someone who, those are, who are the survivors that are left behind, the kids, parents, grandparents, siblings, and you go to these groups and you meet people, when it's a group setting, you meet people who have lost someone a week ago, someone who lost someone 20 years ago, because you always have questions and it will never really feel it's tough it's a tough loss there there's the questions there's emotions that kind of go up and down with it but it is nice to be in that setting where we get it we've all lost someone in that same way that sudden way it's sounding like you benefited more from the group space or the group counseling more than individual you saw a lot of value in that it sounds like oh yes the group counseling was extremely helpful because sometimes you want to go and just listen, like you don't have a lot to say, but you need to just hear that all of your thoughts and emotions and feelings are normal. You sound so well supported, as you said, the the relationship that your family has sounds really special and unique. You were in counseling right away. Now that you're a bit further out from the experience, do you think there's anything that you would have changed as you look back? know if I feel like there is a lot that I would necessarily change Mm -hmm. when I think about getting the news. You know, I took a good amount of time off. I took probably around a month off. Mm -hmm. And that's really because my colleagues and coworkers donated their PTO to me. So don't say that, that I had that large bucket of time off (laughs) with that. I was, I was supported also with the organization that I was working for. But I don't feel like there was too much that I really necessarily change you know probably could have talked about it a little little sooner but I also feel like that was just a part of my process and Mm -hmm. where I was in accepting what had happened Uh, but since then probably don't stop I don't I don't stop talking about it now so I guess I made up for that year I love how blessed you sound (laughs) thank you but on, on the note of you don't stop talking about it now you alluded to it earlier that sometimes there's maybe a level of shame that people feel around this topic uh, did you ever feel shame? Did you ever hide the facts or were you transparent from the beginning about the way your mom died when people asked? You know, when people asked, I did talk about it, but I wasn't so like outwardly seeking to have conversations about it. She also had experienced domestic violence that last year of her life. And although I knew she had attempted Many times prior to that relationship, I really blamed that partner of hers. I felt like that surely didn't help in that final year of her life of isolation. 
that was occurring. Just she wasn't as close to her family, friends, myself in that last year. So I did feel like as close as my mom and I were that I did blame that person for the abuse that was taking place. And also the losing that losing that last year because we did lose that last year. And not that we didn't talk at all. We surely were in communication a few days prior, actually. But that last Christmas and last birthday and last holiday, things like that, she was she was quite isolating that relationship. So why do you talk about it now? What's the impetus for being yeah. so brave and sharing your story? That's a good question. You know, I talk about it now because so many people can relate. And when I started to talk about it, one, it was healing. It was a part of the healing process for me. It felt like, okay, I'm not alone. Many people experience this. And then as I shared more, people have reached out and said, I've struggled with suicidal ideation or they've lost someone from suicide. And whether it's my mental health Mondays that I post or podcast features like this, they're able to listen in and feel like, okay, I'm not alone in this. And it just encourages people to keep pushing forward. Because I always say suicide is a domino effect. And someone's action to take their own life, everyone else that's left here is so greatly impacted. Like my life has never been the same since losing my mom to suicide. There is an Angela before this and there's an Angela after. But I I would never be able to go through life and not acknowledge the way that I lost my mom and what my life has looked like. I would never be an author of the kids look about suicide had I not lost my mom that way. And so many other things that have just happened, some some great and some a bit more challenging. So why the book? Tell us about why the book. Yeah, why the book. <laughs> I always did want to be an author. <laughs> didn't know I was going to be an author of the kids look about suicide, but I wanted to write a book. The book is more for right around five and up. That's about the age frame right there. And I wanted to write a book because I felt like you hear about suicide early on, right? And kids, kids can handle almost anything if we tell them the truth. And we talk about it really early on. A lot of times it's adults that live in fear of oh, well, you know, I don't want to sign my kid up for swimming lessons because what if they drown or, you know, they react to a dog walking by and jump. Well, now your kid is is adjusted to that jump, you know? So I feel like if we have the conversations early on, we can equip them with the knowledge of, you know, that's a very permanent decision for feelings that are oftentimes temporary. So my book is geared towards talks to the kid from two different angles, which is really what I wanted to do because I couldn't leave out um, either or. And the first angle is the kid like myself who has lost someone to suicide to let them know the emotions are okay to have. Some days I'm really high spirited and some days I'm really low. Some days I'm upset with my mom. Some days I really miss my mom. Let them know that the feeling of guilt is normal, but it's not a burden for us to carry. Um, And then also to the kid who experiences suicidal ideation and letting them know that there are outlets, healthy outlets, there's counseling, there's family and friends and teachers and advisors and aunts and uncles that you can talk to. And just that that is absolutely not the route to take. That sounds fantastic. Congratulations on that. Thank you. I love that you covered both angles and I appreciate the transparency that it sounds like you shared. Sometimes I miss my mom. Sometimes I'm angry at my mom. That sounds so real. Yes, it is. It's absolutely real. Are there any myths and misconceptions about suicide that you would like to dispel? Yes, definitely. You know, people say that those who take their own life are selfish. 
And I do understand what people are attempting to say when they say that. However, if we think about the amount of stress and burden that people are carrying, I think you have a bit more empathy for them to understand that they actually take their own life, often thinking that they are a burden to others and that your life would be easier if they were gone. So it's not necessarily to change the trajectory of Angela's life forever or to cause harm to those around. They are actually in so much pain that one, they want to get out of that pain and stop that pain that they're feeling. And two, they don't want to be the burden that they have believed that they are to others around them. It's almost this act of saving those people around them of like, you know, well, it's just, it's just better. Their life would be better if I was not here, which is absolutely wrong. Thanks for bringing that out. Are there any signs and symptoms of someone in crisis? Absolutely. So I want to talk about teens versus adults because they're similar, but they're different. And there are risk factors and there are some warning signs. So with risk factors for teens, it's most definitely those who have that access to a gun. That is a definitely a huge, a huge risk factor for teens and bullying. That's, that's a big one. Kids, younger kids, teens, they don't always have the tools to really kind of work through things like that. And so sometimes they go towards taking their own life. And then warning signs that you may see are if your teen is withdrawing, you know, if your teen is withdrawing from activities that they like, friends that they would hang around, you're seeing those changes in eating patterns, it could be increased eating, it could be less eating. And then also that kind of like caring less of their appearance. Like if you're someone who always really, you know, kept yourself up and then you just were just dragging and it just all they really didn't care about getting dressed or getting their hair done. And it was just their less and less is, is kind of occurring in their life. For adults, you know, you may see risk factors and some tend to be the same, but, you know, adults tend to have that um, unresolved trauma, you know, that they've gone through their life with many things weighing really heavy on them. and they are more prone to taking taking their own life. And that may be one of those that they just haven't been able to really work through that's really eating at them. Something else is really that loss of or just never really finding that purpose. And that's something where people feel like, what am I here for? You know, as you get older, you feel like, what's my purpose? And then also that isolation. I talked about really seeing that with my mom, it happened to be around an abusive relationship, but she really isolated herself from others. It was like she didn't want to be too close to anyone else while I think that this was something that was constantly on, on her mind again. In different warning signs, it could be talks of death. My mom did express at times that, you know, I would be fine without her. She, there were times where she was really in some low moments. Also, you know, it could be adjusting of wheels, right? If somebody's making different, you know, changes to their wheel that People do that all the time as well. So that doesn't necessarily mean that that is that they are having suicidal ideation, but that does occur before. And then something that you also tend to see that happens in adults actually and teens is that abuse of like drugs and alcohol or any kind of increase in, in uptick there. That's a fantastic list. And some of it makes so much sense. One I didn't expect you to say was adjustment of their will, but that. Yeah. You can see that. It means maybe mm-hmm. someone's thinking things over. Yeah. Uh, yep. 
It does. It does occur. You separated warning signs into teens versus adults. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about teens and maybe even younger children too. How do you recommend that parents talk to their children about suicide or if they think that they're seeing some signs? Yeah. Open and honest. Kids can handle anything. I truly believe that. I believe that we are the ones who carry the fear. I truly do believe that. If you go into conversations in a much healthier manner and there isn't this fear pinned around it, I've seen it with parents letting their kids know that they have cancer and not talking about it as life is ending, but this is what's occurring with my body. This is the education around it. These are the next steps and not breaking down in that conversation. You know, of course, there's more detailed conversations if it does take a turn for the worse, but just having, just being open, just being honest resources, you know, like my book, of course, there's also other resources out there, Uh, but kids are going to talk. Kids, kids talk and they hear things and they hear things from their friends. So better to hear from a trusted adult who has accurate information. Mm. So we have a kid named Jimmy and Jimmy's mom notices some of the signs that you've highlighted. Should she be as direct as, you know, Jimmy, I see you've been having some changes. You're just not yourself. Are you thinking of hurting yourself? Those are all the right questions. I say those direct questions are helpful. And you really honestly said that, you know, Mm -hmm. I've noticed some changes in your eating habits. Is everything okay? Is there anything you want to talk about? I've noticed that your friend Troy hasn't come over in the last month or so. Are you guys still hanging out? Did a fight happen? Just you know, really being engaged in your kid's life. Who are their friends? Who do they hang around with? How often? Noticing those different patterns, you know, we can't always pick up on everything, but I do think it's really important to be active in our kid's life, whether, especially in this online world, right? It's not just what they face at school, but it's also what they face in games they play online and who they're connecting with literally around the world. So all of that is super important to be involved in and just being being confident in asking those questions. I think I, I'd rather ask the questions than to not ask the questions and something occurs. And I feel like, you know, there, there was more there and it wasn't addressed. And you feel like you failed when you don't, you know, ask those, ask those tough questions. I've heard of people at a very young age, like I recently heard a, a girl say at the age of six, she had considered taking her life. Mm-hmm. And some people might say, so young, how do they even know what that is or how to take their life? You know, have you ever heard questions like that? And how do you respond? Yeah, I think, yes, people do ask those questions, but it's the same thing. Like how do kids know about sex early on? Like maybe they, not, they might not know the complete intercourse around sex, like how it exactly happens or how babies exactly get here. But they do know the words, they've heard the sounds, they, you know, there's, YouTube and video game. I mean, there's so much, you know, there's movies. So they may not know the details of it, but they do know that it's a thing and it's there. May or may not spark interest in them, but but kids, kids know. Kids know a lot of stuff. Yeah. If we think someone in our sphere of influence is experiencing suicidal ideation, what should we do? And yeah, um, I know we spoke about that from the kids' angle, but maybe there's more things that we can do for adults or otherwise. You know, I believe in asking questions. If it's someone who you're close to reaching out, asking those questions, how are you? How are you doing? How are you feeling? 
How can you be supported? You know, what can I do? If it is like something that is more of a crisis, right? Then, you know, getting them connected to services. There's the suicide crisis line that is now just 988, which is really, really awesome that they have changed that to be such a accessible phone number. What differences, if any, did you notice in the way you processed your grief compared to how other family members did? You know, I, well, I, I'm a talker, so I talk. <laughs> so I think I'm probably the most talkative. I do podcasts. I do speaking engagements. I definitely was got into counseling, wrote a book, really dive deep in like the things that I wanted to do in life. Like I really have, you know, whether it was travel or going to school, it was like all of these things that like I probably would have moved a little bit slower on. I think I moved faster on just feeling that life is super fragile and also really short. I think other people in my family talk a little bit less about it. But again, I'm my mom's only child. So I was the closest to her. She does have siblings. It's a little bit, I, I think it's the level of like how much it's talked about, you know, is probably the biggest difference. What do you think were the toughest parts of your experience and how have you grown as a result? Yeah, I think the toughest part is just it's truly not having a mom, right? Like not having a mom that's physically here. That'll probably be the hardest thing. I do have really, really awesome motherly figures. My friends and moms, I've had some of the same friends since second, third, fourth grade, you know, even middle school. So I have definitely had that awesome support system. My mom's only sister. My aunt, I talk to on a daily basis. So that love and support is there as well. So definitely surrounded in that, which is really awesome. Very nice. What tips would you recommend to someone who is going through or has gone through a similar experience? No, I would say talk about it. I think that's the best thing for me. And it doesn't have to be on platforms. It can really be with those that are trusted and that you love. It can also be, you know, a counselor and a therapist, you know, having those Having that safe space where you can have the conversations to talk through. Also, if you're someone who just rather listen a bit more, those support groups are really great to go to. You may, you know, do something like introduce yourself and mention who you lost by suicide, but it also gives you a chance to not have to overly express and just listen. And I think even just being someone in the room listening, you, you really do feel like you're not alone. And I think that has been super helpful. And it's in these settings and in my friends, I talk a lot, but I'm the actual opposite when I go there. Like so much that they have to call on me. <laughs> wow, totally the opposite. If I, if I go to my support groups, I just need to, I just usually need that reminder that I'm not alone. And sometimes I do share the things that I've done since then to let, especially those who are newer to the groups, that there are great things that can come out of such awful loss. But a lot of times I, I find myself just just listening. How did you find the SOS support group that you referenced? Probably from Google, but when I went, I got I connected with the person who was leading the group and we stayed connected since and she started connecting with other people. Cause at the time when I, I really wanted to find people who look like me who had lost mm-hmm. who have lost them in that way. So I I definitely built that network up with people who identify as black or African American. Cause at first when I was going to groups, I was only seeing people who didn't look like me. And I really wanted to start having conversations with those who do look like me and, and, you know, not feeling so isolated there. Tell us why that was important. You know, I think finding people that look like you and everything is important, whether it's your career, your fitness journey. But for me, with finding someone who looked like me for a suicide is, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, which is majority of 
well, excuse me, majority white population with maybe like four to six percent uh, black people of color. So when I moved to Houston and I started attending these sorts of suicide groups, it looked way different. And so I was able to really, you know, connect with different people and wanted to hear like what their support was like with their family and friends and were people really talking about it? Was there shame around it? And I, I found some really awesome nonprofits and other organizations to be a part of in relation to suicide here in Houston. If people could take away one thing from our conversation, what do you think it should be? I would say to learn it, empathize a bit more with those who are struggling with suicidal ideation and those who do ultimately take their life because they really do feel that they are much more of a burden. And also just taking it seriously when people do maybe post a status on social media where it seems like they may be having those suicidal thoughts. I don't take any of that lightly anymore. I do reach out and I haven't had someone that, that you know, ultimately did, but the, the feeling to uh, need to reach out and tell my story or just have a quick conversation or a check-in also just reminds people that people do care. That's a really great point. And on that note, do you have any thoughts on right or wrong things to say when people mm-hmm. reach out, particularly if they've not, this is not something they've lived themselves? Yeah. Well, for the right things to say is, you know, asking how you can best support them, asking, are they okay? I always say, ask if they would like you to pray with them because that's not everyone's preference. And then the wrong things to say is really just anything judgmental, you know, just anything that will make them feel worse about the situation or embarrassed that they maybe posted a status or, you know, not making them feel like, oh, we're just doing this for attention because people are sometimes seeking attention in the way that they're asking for help. And that is a way to seek attention is asking for help, but they're, they're not wrong for doing it because that may be their their only way or their only thought like well if I post the status and you know maybe I'll get some comfort so I just you know try not to be judgmental when you do see things like that because those a lot of those people are suffering too and it's just they're using social media as their outlet which a lot of people do nowadays Mm -hmm. nothing judgmental so nothing like child please what could be wrong with your life you have like two cars five houses (laughs) (laughs) call me when you've got a real problem (laughs) right exactly because people do feel that way that like oh Oh, she travels all the time or, you know, he drives a Mercedes or he's the dean of this school or he's the, you know, he's a celebrity, you know, he's a movie star or, you know, what, what could be the problem? But mental health affects all of us yes. at different times of our life, different stages of our life. And there's enough money to take that away. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Angela, for coming to the Good Health Cafe to share your story on such a sensitive issue. We really appreciate having you here. Finally, if people wanted to get your book or learning more about you, how would they do that? Yes, you can be in touch and find my book and anything else that you need in regards to me on my website, AngelaNicoleFraser.com. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Some key takeaways from Angela were support is key, group therapy can be beneficial, and sharing your story can be healing. As usual, if you would like to learn more about the Good Health Cafe, check out our website, thegoodhealthcafe.com, follow us on social media, or sign up for our mailing list. If you or someone you know needs help, 
please check out some of the resources in your area. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.